Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Epic All Day podcast. This is Jim Simcoe. Hope you are doing well. Um, so this show is going to be a little bit different. Um, I think this is a really important topic and a couple things have come to light recently. So I wanted to blast this out today. Um, it's Friday, July 21st, and I really feel like going surfing because it's gorgeous outside and the water's warm and the surf is nice. But I'm recording this instead because I think it's just something that's really um, important to talk about. And so this is not, this is not going to be edited. Uh, and it's not gonna have, it's probably not gonna have the intro or the, or the outro to it either. I just wanted to get this on, on tape and just talk about it. I'm just going to bleed it out. So you, some of you may have known Chester Bennington from the band Lincoln Park committed suicide yesterday on, uh, on the 21st, or excuse me, on the 20th. And uh, Lincoln Park has always been one of my favorite bands. I love him. I love this guy and the way he sang. And um, for the last 15 years or so, I've listened to their music right before I play football or do any kind of sporting events. And just really, for whatever reason, just really connected with their music and really liked it. One thing I didn't know about Chester uh, when I was reading about, reading about him last night is that he had a history of sexual abuse as a kid um, was abused for a really long time, kind of abused at the same ages I was abused, kind of in that um, 10 to 10 to 14, 15 uh, year old time period. Also was was battled drug addiction, battled depression, battled a bunch of different things. So um, one thing, sorry, I'm getting a drink. Um, one thing that um, I think is crucial to understand is the is the effects of sexual abuse on people, whether um, it's happened to you or someone you know. Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about sexual abuse and, and how do you survive sexual abuse? How do you deal with it? How do you deal with domestic abuse? I think domestic abuse and sexual abuse um, are similar in the sense that they're both insanely traumatic things that happen and can scar you for life and can cause lots of people to commit suicide. So I'm hoping that even though this is an incredibly difficult topic, I'm hoping I can tell you my story and, and kind of like what I lost, what didn't work for me, and then ultimately what worked for me. And, and really my hope is, is that for the you know, 1,000, 2,000 people or so who listen to this episode, I hope every single one of you, no joke, I hope every single one of you has already uh, clicked out of this episode because it doesn't apply to you and because you've never been... Um, a victim or never been in that circumstance or don't know anyone who's been in that circumstance. I, I sincerely hope that no one actually ends up having to listen to this episode. So, um, and for those of you who don't have, you know, haven't had that experience or don't know anyone who has, and if this doesn't apply to you, by all means, click out and listen to something that's a little bit brighter and a little bit more, um, uh, uh, not of a serious and traumatic as a topic. Uh, my goal is that by telling my story and kind of telling what worked for me um, and what didn't work, I can help one person. So if there's one person who's listening to this that, that I can help with my example and give a little bit of hope to, then it's worth, you know, this is worth it for me. So anyway, so let's get rolling into it. So, and some of you, if you've read my book, <clears throat> you may know this, you may know some of this already, or if you're friends or, um, or if you've heard my story before, you may know this already. And for those of you who don't, I'm just going to tell you. So I grew up in Attleboro, Massachusetts. And when I grew up, my mom worked full time. Um, she was a single mom 
And when she met my dad, the guy who legally adopted me when I was 10, um, he had a family in Attleboro that consisted of like his mom, his sister, his stepbrother at the time, and a couple other, you know, some other family members. Um, so we used to go to my grandmother's house all the time as a kid for Sunday dinners or play. She actually gave me my very first job mowing her lawn, taking out her trash when I was really young. So it just was in many ways shaping up to be an idyllic childhood because I had been raised by a single mom who was working a lot of time and kind of gave me all the love and support she could, um, but was really, you know, working really hard to support us. And here we go. We get wrapped into this family that was awesome. And just like on the surface, it was just, everything was fantastic. Anyway, one time, uh, my uncle, uh, not my uncle Patrick, but, um, who's my favorite uncle. Um, but my other uncle, uh, basically when I was home alone after school, um, at my grandmother's house, <clears throat> made me go upstairs with him, made me lay down with him, made me you know, get naked with him. He was naked and all the while was telling me, you know, this is totally normal. Don't worry about it. Everybody does this, you know, and although it's totally normal and it's, and everybody does this, um, you know, don't tell anybody, definitely don't tell your parents cause they'd be mad. But well, obviously when you're a little kid and you hear those things, you know, you're not mature enough to understand really what's going on. And, and, and Although everything felt horrible and I felt completely violated, I didn't feel like I could tell anybody. Um, so that went on uh, for a number of years. It went on mostly when my grandma, my grandmother wasn't home, um, and it almost always happened at her house when I would um, uh, I would get there after school and he would be there. So someone would pick me up from school take me back to her house and I'd be there in like the late afternoons. Then my mom and dad would come pick me up, you know, we'd have dinner there or whatever, but that was just, you know, an easy way for them to have someone take care of me when I was younger was to just go to grandma's house. And they obviously, you know, I love my parents very much and they're best parents in the world. Um, but they obviously had no clue what was happening, but so I would be there in the late afternoons and this would happen anytime, uh, he was there and I got to the point where like getting to her house and pulling up that really long driveway. If I saw his car, my, you know, my, my throat would like close and my heart would sink. And I would just like be filled with this impending dread. I think that's the best way to describe it is like this feeling of dread, like, Oh shit. Like, Oh, is it going to happen again? And and the long and short of it is it happened a ton over the years. Um, and I went through, as I got older, <clears throat> and was able to process it a little bit more. I had the typical feelings of suicide, of depression, of embarrassment. Probably the biggest one I felt most of all was really shame. I just felt ashamed for whatever reason. I don't know why, but I just felt ashamed. I felt like I had this huge secret that nobody could know about it. I felt really unclean. I felt kind of unsure in my own body. I didn't want to look at myself in the mirror every, you know, anytime. Um, and, and really this, these things, um, played out, you know, during high school. And if you looked at my high school experience on the surface, I seemed to really have my shit together. I mean, I was an athlete. I was like, you know, playing lacrosse. 
Um, I was student council president. I was in, you know, all the, all the pop or in a lot of the popular clubs. I was in honors. I got pretty good grades. I would say pretty good grades. Um, you know, but I was in the top, you know, top quarter of my class easily. And I just seemed to have my shit together. I mean, I had a good group of friends and had a good uh, friend support system. And it wasn't like on Friday nights or, you know, that I had nothing to do or like when I walked into the cafeteria, I had nowhere to sit, which I think that a lot of people face those things, right? Like your high school, what's the hardest part about freshman year is like you walk into the cafeteria that first day and you're like, oh shit, like where do I sit? I don't know anybody. Like, what do you do? I didn't have those problems. Like I, I had a pretty good support system, but I just had this huge, uh, I just had this huge secret that nobody knew about that I tried to hide as much as possible. And, and really, you know, I felt really weak and really powerless and, and, and to some extent I felt really sort of fatalistic. Like I remember this is the, uh, I used to, I used to take a couple different buses to get home cause I lived in Attleboro, but I went to high school in Providence, Rhode Island, which is about 30 minutes away. So I had to take a series of three different, um, public buses to get to get back to Attleboro to get to my grandmother's house. And one of the buses uh, always dropped us off in downtown Providence and I would be downtown Providence and be, you know, kind of late afternoon, two or three and kind of in that dusk, you know, that dusk time where it's not, you know, it's, it's still light out. Um, it, but like, I'd be walking around the bus station waiting for my buses. And I remember so many times just thinking like, you know, the buses whizzing out in and out of a bus station. I was like this little kid. I was just saw, thought so many times like, man, if I just stop, if I just step in front of the bus, like this is all over. Like he can't hurt me anymore. He can't touch me. I, I don't have to worry about the secret and hiding it. And, and I just thought like, wow, what a, how great would that be? I could just, I could just, it could all just be over. It would just be over. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of shit to carry around when you're like 13 years old, uh, 14 years old. That's a, that's a, that's a lot to carry on or 15. Um, one of the, one of the other somewhat interesting, uh, parts of this story is that because of what happened, I'm really shaky on my dates back then. Like I actually don't remember a lot about my childhood until I was like eight or nine. And then there's a gap, um, until like mid high school that I just don't remember what happened. And, you know, my mom or dad will tell me a story and they'll be like, Oh, remember that? And, you know, when you were, when you're in middle school and da, 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 and I, you know, or early high school. And I'd be like, no, I just don't remember that because I really felt like my childhood was taken away from me anyway. So my story and in terms of what I lost, um, I really feel like I lost my childhood in many aspects. And I think that if anyone here has either, uh, experienced that or been a party to somebody who has experienced that you really do lose your childhood. You lose your innocence. You lose your sense of self. Um, it, it was very difficult for me during those times to really get ready in the morning for school or for anything else. Cause I had to look in the mirror and I couldn't look myself in the eye. And, and, you know, I think some of the things that helped, you know, that hurt me long term as I got older was that like, I really could only see sex as power. Uh, I never saw sex as an expression of love. I never felt like I could truly be vulnerable or honest with someone. I always felt like I had this huge secret. 
um, when I met my wife and was dating her, I'm sure that this, this huge secret made, made this way more difficult than our relationship needed to be because I would just felt like I was always just hiding this thing. I think finally when I told her it was, uh, it was a, a, you know, kind of a watershed moment in our relationship and everything changed and became, became even more awesome. But then, you know, the other piece of this is like what I lost in some of this is like I spent a lot of time questioning, needlessly questioning things that as a 13-year-old, you shouldn't be worried about. I was questioning like, you know, my sexuality. I was like, well, am I gay? Like, because I'm being forced to do these things and I'm not telling anybody, so does that make me gay? And clearly, you know, I have always been attracted to women, have never been attracted to men, but that really questioned it. And, and it's, it's less about whether or not I was gay or not. It's more about the fact that like, as a fucking 13 year old kid who should be playing in the street and hanging out with his friends, um, or whatever, I was being molested by a guy 10 years older than me who masterfully played you know, a huge mind game on me and convinced me not to tell anybody and convinced me that this was totally normal and convinced me that, you know, he wasn't doing anything wrong and convinced me that, you know, this was just something that just happened to everybody. Obviously, as I got older and found out that that wasn't the case, that was something that was totally, you know, totally different. Um, so, so in a nutshell, that's kind of my story. I finally came out Uh, and told my, I went to therapy and told my therapist about it, I think when I was around 30. So there's about a 15 or 20 year gap in there, but I didn't tell anybody. Um, And during that time, you know, I I moved, went to college in New York and moved to Los Angeles after that. I lived in LA and then I lived in Santa Monica. And I could tell you that most of my relationships were, you know, pretty shallow relationships, quite honestly, because I really just saw sex as power. I didn't really see it as an expression of love. I never was vulnerable with anybody. It was not about that for me. It was about, you know, dating was about hanging out with somebody, having fun with them and, you know, and being attracted to me. It was never about, you know, a deep, honest, vulnerable connection. I mean, that wasn't just, that just wasn't even anywhere near the realm of possibility. It wasn't even something that I even, um, you know, even was remotely interested in or was thinking was, was a possibility. So that was, that was just kind of the case. And then I met, you know, I met Kelly, met my wife and that cha- sort of changed everything. And that's probably a topic for a different, different day, but she really helped me through a lot of that. But so anyway, so in a nutshell, that's kind of my story. And I, I think if anyone's listening that, you know, you might see some similarities to yours. So I can tell you, I want to talk about a little bit about what didn't work for me. And then what worked for me and then also what I would tell somebody or tell you if you're dealing with this right now. So quite honestly, what didn't work for me was withdrawing from everybody. So during this time, um, I spent a lot of time withdrawing from people. My parents, you know, they had no idea what was going on. They, and although they would have been totally willing to help and would have gotten me out of that situation in a millisecond, I just withdrew from them. And so they thought I had other issues that a typical teenager has. Um, and I just, you know, withdrew. And what I found after the, you know, when I, as I look back on it now, I look back on it, the fact that like, you know, 
withdrawing from people in that circumstance was really not the way, not the way to go. Keeping it hidden was also not the way to go. A thinking that everybody had this experience, um, just like I did <clears throat> was also not the way to go. Um, Obviously, being afraid of what people would think of me if they found out was, you know, really wasn't working for me either. What I find that what this all did, yeah, so what I find that what this all did was it put a tremendous amount of stress on me, right? Because I had this huge secret I was trying to hide. I didn't want anybody to know. Um, I, was drawing, I was withdrawing for people. I was keeping it hidden. I was feeling very fate. Um, fatalistic in many ways and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, borderline suicidal. Um, but probably the biggest challenge during this time was that being afraid of what people would think if they found out that's sort of the over overwhelming gray black cloud of this over me during that time. I was so afraid of that, you know, because I really, you know, I was president of my class. I really seemed to have my shit together. I had a high school girlfriend at the time. Like I just had so many things going on and I felt that it would all be taken away from me if I told anybody. Obviously I couldn't have been more wrong, but that's, these are just some of the things that like if, when you're going through something like this, like you think of like, okay, um, what is this, you know, what, what am I going to, you know, what, what's going to happen to me if I tell anybody? And those were all very real fears that I had during this time, super real fears. So those are some of the things that didn't work for me. I, my guess is if you've been in a similar situation um, or know someone who has, they're probably same, similar to what you've gone through as well. What I can tell you worked for me. So there are a few things that really worked for me that I wanted to um, tell you about is the, one of the first things that worked for me was therapy. So going to a therapist as much as at the time I didn't really want to go to a therapist was, was, really awesome. And it was really crucial in terms of helping me process this and helping me see that, I, you know, I wasn't alone and a lot of people face this and then also see that like what this person did was really horrifically bad and not common and not normal. And, and even though he was telling me all those things, there's, there's obviously, um, you know, that was, he was just saying that and it wasn't actually true. So therapy, therapy was a, was a, a big thing. One of the other things that, you know, and if you're not ready for therapy, one of the other things that was really, really help, helpful <clears throat> to me was to write a letter to my abuser. So I wrote a letter, an actual letter to him, like five pages, dealing, you know, kind of writing out what I felt, why he did, you know, why I felt what he did to me was so wrong and so hurtful and so true, you know, so traumatic. And, and in the letter, I forgave him. I said, you know, I said, I'm going to forgive you and I'm not forgiving you for you. Like, I don't care what happens to you. I'm forgiving you for me. I need you to, I need to forgive you for me. Um, so writing a letter to my abuser, I, I never sent it to him, but I wrote it. Um, I think it's something that's super cathartic to do. So it's worth it, uh, worth it to do. The other thing that worked for me was really to find my outlets and find those expressions in life where I could really lose myself and, and be doing things that, uh, wouldn't require me to overthink. So for me, that was music, sports and surfing. So when I played any sports at all, I just felt better afterwards. 
and I played football, softball. Um, I played a ton of basketball. And I think there was something to the fact that, you know, by working up a sweat and being competitive and doing well in those environments helped build my confidence and helped me realize that, hey, you know, like I'm not just the guy who was sexually abused for five years. I'm also a guy who can hit a three-point shot and uh, can catch a touchdown pass. And so it added uh, some feelings of value. And I think that's one of the things I think people lose. I know in my case it was like, you lose your sense of value. You lose your sense of your sort of your sense of self-worth and your self-esteem when someone's just basically using your body and making you do stuff. Um, it's like you're a freaking object, right? I mean, that's the, that's the, I don't know another way to say it. I mean, it's just, that's just what it is. So when you're able to take your body and control your body and do something successful with it, even if it's something as, um, uh, what some other people might perceive as something super meaningless, like, you know, scoring a layup in a, in a pickup basketball game on a Saturday, it might mean the world to you. I know it did for me. I know that was one of my biggest outlets was playing competitive sports and being decent at them. Um, another outlet for me was listening to certain music. Like obviously I've talked a thousand times about it, but listening to the chili peppers was really helpful for me listening to, uh, James Taylor, Van Halen, just a variety of different things. The doors, the doors were huge for me, but just to allow me to get out of my head and get lost in music and get lost in, in playing sports. And the last one for me was really surfing was going out, getting in the ocean, feeling like the, the cleansing positive ions of the ocean kind of wash over me. Um, when this was all going on, <clears throat> I used to, my big thing was I used to spend a ton of time in the shower just cause I felt like I could never get clean. Like I just, after what my uncle would do to me, like I just, I just couldn't get clean. I couldn't feel, I just couldn't feel clean. And so by surfing and getting in the ocean, um, I'm in this huge pool, huge swath of water cleaning me in many ways. And, um, and that's kind of how it felt. <clears throat> it almost felt like a baptismal where I was going back into that experience and feeling, feeling better in that experience. So, so finding my outlet for me, again, sports, music, and surfing, whatever your outlet is, whatever you can do to find it and whatever you can do to, um, spend time in that outlet would be huge. Um, the other thing was, another thing that worked for me was finding out ways to deal with my shame, right? So for me in the beginning, it, it involved doing a very simple exercise and I recommend it to anybody. Um, and that was really just looking in the mirror, looking at myself in the eyes and really being okay with the guy that I saw staring back. Like I didn't need to be, I didn't need myself to be perfect you know, so I forgave myself and I needed, I just needed to feel okay with the person that I, that I was. So I needed to see the guy in the mirror and be okay with that guy. Um, for you, it might be something else. Maybe there's another exercise you can try, or, you know, if you've got a friend going through this and another exercise you can try, but I think the finding ways to deal with the shame and, and combat the shame, which can be just an overwhelming, um, experience is, is really, really key. 
One of the other things that worked for me, I've got a couple more here, but one of the other things that worked for me was talking about it. So the very first person I ever told was Kelly and she, and I ended up marrying her, but talking about it, the more I talked about it, the more I told other people, what I found was in many ways, and it sounds kind of weird, but it was almost empowering because I was able to show them that, Hey man, this happened to me. It doesn't define me. It's part of, uh, it's part of my experience in life, but I'm a, you know, like I came through it and, and you'd be amazed. You'd be amazed when you talk about it, how, and whether it's this problem or something else, when you talk about it with somebody, you'd be amazed at some of the feedback that you get or some of the insights that you get or some of the things that, that happen. I know when I finally told my stepdad, my dad, and my mom, you know, they all had varying reactions and, and each one of those experiences was such a special experience and brought me so much closer to, um, each one of them, you know, and I remember in particular telling my dad who still lives in, still lives on the East coast. And we were on the phone for like two hours and he told me about a lot of things that had happened in his life. And he, and he, you know, we just got a lot closer after that conversation because we were both super vulnerable and super honest. It's probably the best conversation I've ever had with him in my, in my whole life. And a very similar thing happened with my stepdad who, who, you know, kind of was the same way. And it was probably one of the best conversations I ever had with him. So being, being able to talk about it and tell people about it is something that really, really, really worked for me. Um, the, the two, the two other things that really worked for me. And again, I can only tell you about my experience and kind of help you. Um, and I hope you can take some lessons away from my experience. Everyone's experience is different, but, um, the, the, the one that I would say a therapist probably wouldn't agree with or would probably say like, Hey, um, you know, maybe that's not the best way to look at it, but for whatever reason it seemed to work for me is it was really realizing how freaking weak my uncle had to be to do such a shitty thing to a kid. So if this has happened to you, whether you're a victim of sexual abuse or domestic abuse or something traumatic like that, you got to realize how weak that other person is, that they have to do that to someone who is smaller and physically weaker than they are. For me personally, when I was able to realize that, to realize that, hey, this person wasn't totally powerful and can make me do whatever, and they were just a sick person who were, who was able to cajole, you know, cajole a, uh, a 13, 14 year old kid into, into, into this stuff. It really made me switch the perspective because I'm like, okay, I used to think you were the powerful person. And I'm, what I'm realizing is, is you were the weak person. I'm the powerful person. Cause I made it through it. I'm the powerful person because I got through that and I'm still here. So that's something I think that, you know, while a therapist or, or a Buddhist monk may not tell you you should do, it was, <laughs> it was really helpful for me is to really put the, put it into context and think about how weak that other person is and how you're so much stronger. And then the last thing that really worked for me is to, is realizing that this is part of my story and this experience is part of my story but it, that it doesn't have to define me. Okay. This isn't something that is, 
my whole story. It's part of it. So it is, um, I don't walk around saying I'm a sexual abuse survivor. I'm not defined. I don't allow myself. I don't allow everything in my life to be defined by that event. And I think that, you know, when it was happening and when, and shortly thereafter, it was very difficult to do that. It was very difficult to not think of my life that way. But I think as I've gotten some perspective on it, um, you know, the ability to get perspective and step away from it a little bit and say like, okay, look, this isn't, this doesn't have to define me. It's something that happened. It's a horrific, traumatic, terrible thing that someone did to me and it happened, but it does not define me. So I would say that that might be one of the best things um, that you can do is to realize that it doesn't have to define you. This does not have to be the definition of your life. A lot of other awesome things can happen to you and this can, you know, at some point be such a small piece of your life um, because you've created a life that's beautiful that's outside this. So I think that, that those are the things that you know really helped me were therapy, writing a letter, finding my outlets, finding out ways to deal with shame, talking to people about it, uh, realizing how weak the other person was, and then realizing it's part of my story, uh, but it doesn't define me. Um, my last piece here that I want to talk a little bit about is what I would tell you um, if you are actually actively dealing with some type of abuse or if you have a friend who is dealing with some type of abuse, okay? So this is, this is, these are in no particular order, but if you are in, if you are in the throes of abuse right now, I, I'm begging you to talk to somebody. Call me. I don't care. 760-271-7128. Call me. I don't care if I know you or not. Call me, call somebody, call somebody, talk to somebody, call a hotline, whatever you can do, just talk to somebody. That's the first thing. I also want you to realize that like, look, man, you're, you know, whether you're a man or woman, realize you're not alone. Okay. Other people have dealt with this. I've dealt with this. Um, I know that that. I'm not saying that to marginalize anything that you may be going through. I just want to give you a little bit of, you know, if there's any comfort in that, in the sense that you're not the only person who's had to deal with this. And there are tons and tons and tons of success stories of people who have dealt with it. And you can also be one of those success stories, right? Like you can, I think of myself as one of these success stories. You can be one of those success stories. Um, along those lines, you know, the thing I would tell you is like, look, don't give up on yourself. Okay. Don't, I mean, it's, it might be tremendously difficult and it might be really, really hard right now, but just don't give up on yourself. It will eventually get better. And you may not be able to see that right now, but I think it will eventually get better. If you're able to get help, talk to somebody, um, and then really, if it's still going on, if you're still being abused, get the hell out of the situation, okay? So no matter what excuses that person is making, you've got to get out of that situation. You just have to. Um, and if you've got a friend who's dealing with this or you have a friend who's, you know, being abused and they're making excuses for their, 
for their partner or for anything happen, you've got to grab them and shake them and say like, look, this is not okay. This is not how loving people treat each other and talk to each other and, and, and deal with each other. Cause you know, there's sexual abuse, there's domestic abuse and there's emotional abuse and they're all, they're all horrific. So do what you can do to get away from the situation. If it's a friend of yours, get away from them. If you have a friend you're, you, you feel is going through this, it's better think it's way better to say something to them than to not you know one of the facts that always strikes me is that you know one in five people have been a victim of sexual abuse or domestic abuse right and I think back to my time as a kid as a scared little boy um, and I just think like you know if one person had asked me like if one person had said said something to me maybe I could have stopped everything, you know, maybe I could have, maybe it could have just, it could have stopped, right? If just one person had asked me like, Hey, what's going on with you? Or, you know, why, you know, is something happening to you at home or just something? If someone had said one thing, then maybe, maybe this wouldn't have happened to the degree, the degree it happened. So please, 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 if you suspect that one of your friends or someone you know is going through that, please ask them and see and make sure, you know, that you get an answer on that, you know, because you don't want to, uh, you know, you want to be able to do anything you can to help those, you know, to help people get through this. And if, and if it's you, you know, then I, I know how difficult it can be, but whatever you can do to reach out to somebody, um, so that it stops with you is, is, is something that I would recommend. Um, so anyway, I want to thank all of you for listening. If you're still listening, I, again, hope some of this was helpful for you. Um, I was really triggered last night when I heard about uh, Chester from Lincoln Park committing suicide and seeing his history of sexual abuse. And I know that uh, my guess is that some of those experiences of his childhood really played a, a factor in his drug addiction and his depression and everything else. And it's, it's just a shame to see a life like that um, and I just think it is. And that's why I wanted to record this. I hope that, you know, if this was able to help you in any way, I'm, I'm honored and happy about that. And I really hope that if this, if this is, uh, uh, something that you think someone else might be going through, I hope that you have the courage and the, and the, and the, and loyalty to your friend to ask them and, and see if you can help them. So anyway, I'm not going to belabor the point, but I appreciate you guys listening in. Uh, and I appreciate you listening to this topic. This was a topic that I've been really wanting to talk about for a year or so, but quite honestly, never really had the, uh, (laughs) I guess the courage to do it. Um, I just didn't want to, but it's something that's so important because again, it affects one in five people. So thank you for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Any questions, uh, feel free to email me or text me. I gave you my number before, but yeah. And if there's anything I can do to help any of you, thank you so much. And again, thank you for listening to the show. It, uh, it's just awesome to have you guys, uh, have you guys on the show. Thank you so much for listening to the show on a regular basis. I appreciate it.